Welcome to the first electrical podcast. I can't really justify this. I can't offer up a reason for my actions. There's no objective. There's no intent. It's just that if you get a new computer, normally you can be content just using it and going on the internet and sending emails and playing games. But if you get a new computer and it's a Mac, I got a MacBook, well, you feel bizarrely obliged to participate with the whole Mac ethic. And that means you've got to put your photos on iPhoto and share them on iWeb and make a podcast and then edit that weekend hiking in the forest video on iMovies and share that. You've got to learn new skills. You buy a Mac and it's like signing up for evening classes when you're drunk. Suddenly, hang on, I bought a new computer and I'm learning Russian every Tuesday. How did it happen? You've bought yourself a job. That's what you've done. You've gone out and spent a thousand pounds on a job that will never pay you a penny. And I do like Apple stuff. I, I, I subscribe to the whole crusade. And don't worry, this don't worry. This podcast will not be about computers. It's going to be full of things that astound and boggle. But with Apple, I do have my gripes. Not just because I'm now recording a podcast when I don't really want to, but mainly because of the slight smugness of the long-running ad campaign involving a man who represents a Mac and another man, a far geekier man, who represents a PC. They're against a white background and Mac guy, he's got a casual blue jersey on. He's the epitome of Californian success. But PC guy is more unprepossessing. He's dressed in browns and beiges. So Apple guy is meant to be the brilliant one, clearly. And PC guy is meant to be the loser. But the problem I have with Apple guy is that I kind of want to kick his face to pieces. I don't know why. He's too affable, too sure of himself and yet too modest. He's probably effortlessly good at scuba diving. He isn't vulgar enough to be rich, but he's well off. And he's 24 and he's got a girlfriend called Alice or Pelican, who strangely is not quite as good looking as him. And that's because he doesn't rate looks over personality. And they get married when they're 28 and they'll have a reception in front of the Golden Gate Bridge. The fact is, if you're going to go and have a drink with either PC guy or Apple guy, you'd pick PC guy. Every day of the year, you'd pick PC guy. You can relate to PC guy. He's having a terrible time of it. If you go for a drink in a bar with him, you can moan about stuff. You can wallow. And he'd be going, oh, my boss hates me. I'm an idiot. I crashed today for the third time and everyone was shouting at me and girls don't think I'm cool. And you'd feel like you'd met a kindred spirit. If you go for a drink with Apple guy, he'd just be like, hey, do you want to see some photos of me and my friends surfing? No, no, I don't. This is a bar for grown-ups. It's run by Frank over there. Look at him. Look at Frank. It isn't run by Hannah Montana. Can't you just sit down and have a grumble? Sit down and have a grumble with me. Well, sure, well... Why do you want to grumble about? Anything. It doesn't matter. Sports or, or anything. Actually, I've just got this great grumble app on my phone. So, you see, if you bought PC Guy a beer, he'd be grateful for that beer. He needs the beer. You offer Apple Guy a beer. He's just going to go, actually, I think this might have gluten in it. So, 
I might just have a wheatgrass smoothie, if that's okay. Do they do wheatgrass smoothie? Actually, I can just download one direct from the ice store, direct into my ice stomach. This is, you know those great American dive bars, which are perfectly safe but full of, of characters, and everyone would have stopped their conversations and they'd be looking over, and you'd have to do that really cowardly thing of basically giving him up to the enemy, and they'd all be walking over with pool cues, and you'd go, I have absolutely no idea who this guy is, I swear. Let's steal his, his little iPad. Let's punch him. Let's punch him. But Stan, I I thought we were friends. Oh, my teeth, my perfectly insured teeth. Oh, I think my sister and I are blessed, yes. Um, blessed to have Bromsgrove, the family home. Yes, because of course there are many of the old families who have lost their estates through inheritance tax. Well, through theft, which is what inheritance tax indisputably is, and through maintenance costs. Staffing costs. They can't maintain the salaries of staff, some of whom have worked at these houses for generations sometimes. Right, absolutely. Um, or the poor wretches have to open to the public at weekends, or, or sell the whole place to the National oh, Trust. Beastly people. Well, absolutely. So there's no doubt we are here at Bromsgrove, on the whole, blessed. And very thankful with it. Indeed. But I would say we've been jinxed, or blighted, if you like, with some of the people who make up the rest of our uh, set, as it were. Oh, careful, Hugo. No, I think it's time we spoke out. Um, because it's bullying. And it's also jolly unfair. And it's unreasonable. And um, that's the tragedy. Entirely. I mean, there's one lot who are here a great deal. Uh, the Sandbridge. They're an old family from Hampshire way. Used to be absolutely charming to Daddy. Oh, utterly. <laughs> utterly. But ever since we took over the running of things, they've become entirely rotten towards Philippa and myself. Yes, it, it's true. They came here to Bromsgrove last month for a candlelit dinner and concert on the lower lawn. Elliot Stanbury, his wife and their child. Uh, what's, what's his name? Um, oh, oh, Wilberforce. And so they accepted our invitation. We had about 300 guests at table around the lawn. And then in the centre, we had the Welsh Philharmonic playing a selection. It was an absolutely idyllic evening. Absolutely beautiful. Yes, but then it starts up, doesn't it, from the Stanbury's. Bloody pikeys! Was it, was it pikeys or was it, was it jippers? It was pikeys. We were listening to the orchestra, the great and the good of the country gathered on a warm evening, and this constant heckling. Bloody pikeys, get back to your caravan! Bloody pikeys! It's just so damned rude. And, and you know, the Sandbury's might own a fair whack more turf than us. I mean, they own Western Hampshire practically, but we're not exactly. Well, well, we've got from the house here, down past the lake, right over through the valley to the horizon there, and over to the east, that's us, the majority to the west. That's a good 20,000 acres of solid farmland. And 5,000 of pasture. I mean, we're not the Sandbridge, but even so, I think, I think Pikey is a bit strong, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Well, it is, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. The bloody Sandbridge. <laughs> I was at London Bridge train station recently when I saw a poster, a billboard advert, for the musical The Lion King. And the slogan was, there was a picture of a lion and it said The Lion King and it mentioned the Lyceum Theatre, there was a phone number. But the slogan was, see it now, remember it forever. See it now, remember it forever. But the thing is, remembering something is not necessarily an indication that it was any good. You know, if, if you got mugged 
That's a terrible thing to happen. But nonetheless, you definitely remember it forever. Remembering you got mugged does not necessarily add a glossy West End quality to the whole experience. And similarly, if you got if you got divorced, there's no way if you've been through a divorce, there's no way you're going to forget that. No one has ever gone up to somebody and said, so have you have you ever been divorced? And that person's looked at looked at them blankly and gone. Uh, divorced? Um, I can't, do you know, I can't remember. Like, if you went to see The Lion King, whatever you thought of it, there's no way you're going to forget it. Saying something is unforgettable, essentially, uh, see it now, remember it forever, it's unforgettable. Most things are unforgettable. Even if 25 years in the future, you're sat outside this futuristic Blade Runner-style neon cafe... You're chatting with someone and they go, uh, there used to be a musical years ago and it was called The Lion King. Did you ever go and see it? You'd go, even if you haven't thought about it in 20 years, you'd go, uh, The Lion, oh yeah, The Lion King. Yeah, God, I remember that. We did go and see it. You'd be with a friend and the friend would go, oh, The Lion King. I forgot about that. It was rubbish, wasn't it? Why did we go and see it? Why was that? I remember that. And you'd go, oh, I can't. Well, it was because somebody had, um, had, someone had tickets. Yeah, a friend of yours that you worked with, you were finishing work or something, and they just came up and said, I've got these tickets to the Lion King tonight, um, but two people are coming down and they can't use them. Do you want them? And we couldn't think of a, a reason not to take them. And so we did. Do you remember? And they were, oh, yeah, I remember. That's right. That even if you were some kind of weird millionaire who just spent all day and night going to see every theatre production in the world for some reason, you'd still, out of all the hundreds of musicals you'd seen, you'd still remember going to see The Lion King. Like, um, most of us have listened to thousands of songs in our lifetime, and most of them don't stay in our head. But if someone mentioned... Even the most forgettable song. If someone said, have you ever listened to uh, Weeping Wall by David Bowie? You'd, you'd go, weep, um, weep, oh yeah. Is it on low? It's one of the, is it one of the instrumental bits? Yeah, I can't really remember. I do remember it. I have listened to it. I've not forgotten, right? What would be... What would be more impressive if there was a if there was a musical you forgot going to see? And that would be amazing. If the you know that this would be good. Um, uh, there's a musical that sort of hypnotizes you within the texture of the play, the structure of the play, right? I mean the structure and the texture. If plays have texture, which they do. So the next day, someone says, "What was that play like?" And you go, "What play?" And they'd go, the play, the Tiger Queen. The, and you, why, what are you talking about? And they'd say, you went to see a play yesterday. You were telling us you were off to see a play called the Tiger Queen in Battersea. I never. Do you, yes, you did. Do you remember going to Battersea? Yeah, I, but I can't think why. Look in your pockets. <laughs> there must be a ticket stub. And then you go, oh my God, look. I've been to see the Tiger Queen, but I don't even remember it. It's insane. It's the best musical in the... If there was a musical 
at London Bridge Station. If there was a poster at London Bridge Station for a musical and it said, see it now, don't remember it ever, then you'd be intrigued. But the poster at London Bridge Station, the, the other weird thing is it says, see it now, remember it forever. But see it now, now. And I see it now. And I don't I don't think that going to see The Lion King is something that most people would just do off the cuff. You know, like maybe tourists would be around town and go, oh, well, maybe we should see a show tonight. But that involves going to the to Leicester Square to one of those agencies. But this poster was at London Bridge train station, not in the tube bit. On the mainline station, it was on platforms four and five where people commute down to Kent and suburban towns like Sevenoaks and Orpington. So who's who's it for telling people to see it now? It's not the commuters because that doesn't make sense. It's not for the morning commuters because they're all focused. They've got their heads down, eyes on the prize. Um, not on the poster, but on the prize. That's what they're looking at. That's what commuters look at. They look at the prize. Um, they're all in a group headed for the exit. They're not looking at the posters. So the evening commuter who's hanging around after work waiting for his delayed train, they finish work at half six, half, half five, six o'clock. They're standing on the platform. The Lion King probably starts about seven. So what? They just, they look at the poster and just abandon their train. And I don't know, what did they just head for the theatre and go and see the Lion King? I mean, it's, it's probably sold out anyway. You could, you, maybe you could get returns. I don't know. But do they just go by themselves? Is, is this poster on Platform 5 of London Bridge Station just for people so easily sold by an advert, so easily, so easily taken in by a concept that instead of getting on their train, they just turn back, walk through the ticket gates like a zombie in Doctor Who or something, up to the Lyceum Theatre and just go and see The Lion King. And when they get... If they did that, what time's The Lion King finish? Probably about heart 10 or something, right? And so they get home at 11 and their phone's been off because you're not allowed your phone on, are you, when you go and see The Lion King? And their wife is waiting and the kids are probably still up. They probably haven't gone to bed, the kids, because they're worried about dad. And how would you explain... The wife's ups your wife's going to be upset because you haven't called and you, it, it's a rainy old winter's night. And she'd go, she's probably been crying, and she goes, where, where, where were you? And the husband's probably a bit disorientated. And he just, he's going, he goes, um, I can, I don't worry, I can, I can explain, please, I can explain. And the wife would probably usher the kids out of the room and say, look, I need to talk to your dad. And she'd turn to him and go, Harry, listen, are you... Look, if you're having an affair, tell me, you stink of popcorn. Have you been to the cinema with another person? And he'd be like, no, I swear I'd never cheat on you. You know I, you know I wouldn't cheat on you. And she'd go, well, what, what happened? And he'd, he'd say... Well, what happened? What happened? Mary, look at me. What happened was that I went to see the Lion King and she'd look at him a bit confused and she'd say, did, did you just say you went to see the Lion King? 
And he'd say, yeah, I know that sounds a bit mental, but I've never lied to you, have I? I've, throughout our whole marriage, you, you have to believe me. And she'd say, well, it's true. You have never lied to me. But just tell me who you went with. And as long as I'm allowed to call them up, it will be all right. And he'd, he'd say, well, it's not like that. I, I just went on my own. And she'd say, to see the Lion King. And he went... Yeah. And then they'd probably weigh up the whole marriage. But he thinks and goes, look, I can show you the ticket. Look, here, the Lion King, one return. And I suppose instead of saying why, she'd soften and realise that he had, in fact, just been to see the Lion King. And they'd hug and she'd say, oh, you're crazy. What, well, what was it like? And he'd just say, oh, I can't remember. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, best of order, best of order, please. Thank you very much. Now, our next act down here at the Salford Side Splitter is a local lad. Hey. That's right, that's right. And also a very funny man. So please, go wild and crazy and show your appreciation for the comedy stylings of Monacy! Thank you, thank you. So, Richard Maidley... Yes, recently described me as a puffed-up little prat. Yeah, he did. Which I think is a bit rich, coming from a man who married his own mother. <laughs> and, of course, nothing is important. Nothing at all, and people should realise that, and they should just get on with their lives and go mad and take their clothes off and jump in the canal and jump in one of those supermarket trolleys and race around the supermarket and steal Mars bars and kiss kittens. It's the only way forward. And talking of supermarkets, um, I have an incredible talent for eavesdropping. And it's incredible what you hear when you're queuing up to get your fruit juice. And, what? Well, so does anyone here like Elton John? Really? Well, I just think um, he's pushing his face in all the time and he's telling us about his private life and nobody's interested and he should just sh shut up and go away. And he's not the only one, though uh, Sigmund Freud just made people feel so neurotic. Um, so neurotic about their life. I mean, if you, if you had a dream about a lampshade, it meant that you wanted to be whipped by the local vicar or something. <laughs> and, well, I'm not real. Uh, nobody's real, and artists, artists aren't real, and in fact, I'm 40% papier-mâché. It's true, thank you, thank you very much, thank you, goodbye. Talking to a chap I know down the pub recently, and I said, who do you think is the best ever TV detective and after a pause he said you should come down the pub with me by the way it's a right laugh no and he said after a while he said oh uh 
probably that uh, Barnaby. And I, I said, what? Tom Bar- Detective Tom Barnaby out of Midsummer Murders. And he went, yeah. Now, initially, I thought he'd thrown in a bit of stony-faced deadpan brilliance at me. You know, like, if you said, where do you think Kerry Katona likes to go on holiday the most? And they said, um, probably Argentina. It's quite funny in a way, isn't it? Because she'd definitely not think of going to Argentina. Like, I mean, you can't really qualify why Kerry Katona would or wouldn't like going to Argentina because you've no idea what she's like, really, or what she wants from a holiday. And besides, I've not even been to Argentina, so I don't even know what's there that she would or wouldn't enjoy. But still, it's a funny thing to say. Kerry Katona probably wants to go to Argentina. It's a snobbish thing to say, but it's still quite funny. So when my friend said Barnaby... I presumed that that was his Argentina. But for one thing, he's not really the type. And for another, he wasn't trying to get a rise out of me because he'd already lost interest in what we were talking about. He was, he was trying to turn the conversation onto something else anyway. So I began to realise that he was serious. And I am Barnaby, Tom Barnaby's your favourite TV detective. And he said, yeah, I think he's good. He's the worst. He's like a three-piece suite. He's like the sort of just a normal thing that you'd very occasionally hoover or let the dog like. He's, well, it's a bad analogy, but he's like the Nuneaton of TV detectives. You've got other ones who are like the L.A.s and the Londons and the New Yorks and the Tokyos, the Buenos Aireses. That, that would be Kerry Katona's favourite detective, the Buenos Aires of detectives. And then Barnaby's like... The workshop of detectives. He's the Stoke-on-Trent of detectives. He's the, the TV critic, Catelyn Moran, um, in The Times, she said that Midsummer Murders is like coming round a corner in the TV schedules and getting stuck behind a herd of cows. And she's absolutely right, as normal. So I was berating my friend, who just shrugged. He didn't seem to care about what he'd said or done. And I was saying about Barnaby, I was going, he hasn't even got any good skills or, or good points, you know, besides sort of being a really plump... Radio Times version of Bergerac. His only skill is saying any modern word with a strange infliction. Like Tom Barnaby always goes, well, we believe the murder weapon was bought on the internet. You know, a modern word, he goes a bit weird over. But then my friend started saying, all right, then, if you're so good, who's your favourite TV detective? And I, I couldn't answer because it's a draw, really. Up until recently, I would have said Morse. Just straight out. It would have been instinctive. It would have been like a spasm. I've just gone Morse. Because, and going back, even going back, I'm talking, taking into account Sherlock Holmes and modern ones like Wallander. It, it's best TV detective I was trying to get at. And Morse, to me, was always the best TV. They were like, each episode was like a, a pair of slippers. Um, and not in a Midsummer word, not in a Midsummer Murders way, not in a comfy way, because someone's making plum crumble or something in a kitchen. But in a way that you know you're in good hands. The writing, the stories, and John Thor and the perfectly weighted dashes of humour. And for those living outside the UK who are listening to this and perhaps and you have no idea about Morse and no idea about Midsummer Murders either, but don't worry about that. Morse, don't bother yourself with Midsummer Murders, but Morse was... Um, the character was a chief inspector in Oxford, a, a sort of moody underachiever, liked to pint, cursed with women. But he was... He didn't curse with women, he didn't swear at women, he was, he was cursed when it came to women. And he was brilliant, but he messed things up, he wasn't perfect, he was a pain in the arse, he liked crosswords, he liked opera, walks by the river, go to the pub. And he was amazing because everything you want from a detective was there, mainly in the fact they were a mess outside of work, they were, they were flawed. 
But also he had this great sidekick in Sergeant Lewis. Uh, and he would refer to him as Lewis. That was how he spoke to you, Lewis. And so what would happen in a typical Morse episode was some dean or emeritus professor at the university would be murdered and Morse would take a quick look round, stroll through the chapel and then go to the pub and get hammered, right? And then Lewis would look a bit disapproving and Morse would say, you're around, I think, Lewis. And Lewis would go, oh, you think, you think that's a good idea, sir? And he'd go, well, come on, Lewis. And then he'd meet a woman. What would happen then is a woman would turn up who he's not seen in about 20 years. He'd fall in love and then she'd either die or turn out to be the, the murderer. Morse would get in his red classic Mark II jag, go off, find another pub, get hammered. And that would just about be that. It was, it was matchless. It was... It was like two hours of fine dining, right? So I would have always have said Morse, definitely, instinctively. But nowadays for me, Morse has his first contender in Poirot. And I've always liked Poirot, David Suchet's Poirot, that is. But only in the last couple of years has it become a bit of an obsession. But a rival to Morse? I, I, I think so, because for one thing, it's funnier. The earlier episodes, anyway, Poirot is himself a little Belgian ball of unwitting comedy and he's a better detective than Morse so maybe that's a tick but maybe is it is it because it's Morse's flaws that make him great so the other thing also uh, he's also got a sidekick Poirot's got a sidekick like Morse but here this is where it's a big cross because where Morse has Lewis Lewis Poirot has Captain Hastings, who's just a joke of a man. At least Lewis helps. You know, at least Lewis sometimes even solves the whole thing because Morse is down the juicer getting into another doomed tryst with some middle-aged librarian or choirster. But Captain, like Sergeant Lewis sorts things out. But Captain Hastings, Hastings is a bloke in his... Uh, late 30s, I suppose, when we first meet him. And he's a wide-eyed, cricket-loving, naive ex-public schoolboy whose only contribution to the entire investigation is to say, Good Lord! And look at cars. Go, Good Lord! And then look at cars. He loves racing cars, which I don't think on a single occasion has been any help to Poirot's work. None. But nonetheless, saying... Good Lord! And knowing about spark plugs were his thing, his only thing. And that, but sometimes uh, with TV sidekicks, that, that, that's what they do. That's how they contribute, by just being a bit stupid. Like sometimes in Poirot um, or in Sherlock Holmes, Watson or, or, or Captain Hastings will go, well, I think it's time for my tea. And then Poirot goes, ah, tea. But of course, you are a genius, my friend. And it go, am I? Good Lord. Because tea has got something to do with the crime and Poirot's figured out that it was tea that did the, that po it was poison tea. You know, he goes, oh, you have done it, my friend. And, but he hasn't, you know, he, he, he completely hasn't. But this is, so Captain is like Watson in the Sherlock Holmes adventures. Because depending on whose portrayal of Watson you go by, he was normally just this buffoon who was going, are you sure, Holmes? And how could you possibly know that, Holmes? And you would imagine that Poirot, and Holmes, you would imagine both of them, geniuses, would get a bit tired of having the sidekick equivalent of a puppy hanging around with them. But they never seem to. And I think it's a very similar syndrome to the most attractive girl at school having quite an unattractive best friend. That was certainly the case at my school. And I've spoken to other people who, who say the same thing. The most attractive girl at school 
had a quite plain best friend. And I don't think this was charity. I think it just emphasised them and emphasised their face. The best looking girl at school was never friends with the second best looking girl at school. And likewise, Poirot and Holmes never hang out with the second best detectives or any intellectuals. They are perhaps intimidated by the threat or certainly worried about maybe looking undistinguished. But I forgive Poirot this. I, I forgive Poirot anything even his curious grasp of English, because two things mark out the Poirot TV shows. One, everything is 1930s. And I know it's set in the 1930s, but everything in Poirot films is 1930s. If he goes to a house, it's Art Deco. He opens a letter, it's done with an Art Deco letter opener. It's a happy indulgence. Right? The second thing is that Poirot decorates his speaking with little bits of French. Well, it's be he's Belgian, isn't he? So it's, it's Flemish, I suppose, but essentially French. But never the hard words that you'd assume he's never got around to learning. It's the easy words, that are the first words you'd learn at school. So Poirot would go, uh, the case against the radiologist is most disturbing, n'est-ce pas? And you go, well, hang on. So you know radiologist, but you don't know, is it not? Or Poirot would go, this case, it is one of science because it deals with the effect of centrifugal force upon the brain. A crime most novel, oui. And you go, hang on, centrifugal? But you don't know the word for yes. And it isn't a crime most novel. It's a most novel crime, Poirot. You're a genius. You know that. I think what happened is that Poirot missed about the first two weeks of English classes at school because he looks a sickly type. I don't think he enjoyed school, Poirot. I think he was bullied. And I think he missed a bit where they learned hello and goodbye and please, but then rejoined the class and went straight to chapter 12. <laughs> Indeed, and thanks hugely to Johnny Rockface for providing this section's very own theme tune there. Johnny sounds like he comes from New York. He's in a band called The Turbines, Johnny Rockface and The Turbines out there in NYC, and they probably kick ass, I would imagine. So, Alan's Dates, terrifically excited about this. Each and every week, we're going to be joined on the phone by Alan Merrick, who is the great, 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 great grandson of John Merrick better known naively and cruelly as the Elephant Man. Many of you will be aware of the Elephant Man story. It's a true story, of course. John Merrick was born with terrible facial and bodily disfigurement uh, in the 19th century and brought up as a human exhibit in a dirty Whitechapel off-street freak show uh, when he was eventually discovered and rescued by a doctor who was fascinated by his condition and, and, and helped him. And then... Uh, perhaps even more tragically, considering how long he was imprisoned and laughed at, John Merrick was found out to be a man of high intelligence and thankfully uh, he eventually got recognition for this and he was accepted in gentlemanly society and, uh, and although he did die tragically early. Anyway, the other positive of the whole John Merrick Elephant Man saga is that he is survived by a living relative, Alan, and Alan joins us on the line now. Good evening, Alan. <coughs> Good evening, Stanley. Lovely to have you with us, dear chap, as you will be every week, I understand. 
Oh, yes. Well, hopefully not. If you get what I mean. <laughs> I'd better explain what we're going to do here, you see. Alan is currently a single man. That's right, isn't it, Alan? That is the case at present, yes. But you're very much part of the dating scene. Yes, I like to take my chances on the great roulette wheel of love, which is the dating scene in London, yes. And there are so many people, so many millions of people, in the same boat as you, you know, joining dating agencies and going on dates, that we thought you could come on here each week and share your experiences of that week's date with us. Yes, give you the lowdown, so to speak. That's why you said hopefully not every week, or at least not for much longer, because, of course, when that perfect lady comes along, no more dates for you. Oh, no, no more dates, yes. And a life instead with the old ball and chain. <laughs> so, Alan, let's hear a little bit about you. You're 36? Yes, um, 36, I think. I mean, I don't know exactly when I was born because I was left by my, my mother and my father on the steps of the local vicarage when I was a newborn. I, I expect my parents wanted to enjoy being footloose and fancy-free for a few more years. It's very understandable. Oh, and so the vicar and his wife, they brought you in and raised you, did, did they? No. They threw me over a hedge into a stream and I washed up a few fields down on the property of Farmer Humphreys. Who Farmer Humphreys took you in? Who took me into the barn, yes. And I grew up in the barn. But Mrs. Humphreys, she had an enormous collection of novels, romantic novels, and I would sneak into the house at night and take some food and some books and taught myself to read using those, which I may, may explain my rather romantic disposition. I see. Right, hence the dating. So, how many dates... Do you think you've been on in, in total? Over the past 20 years? Uh-huh. Um, 1,049. Every Saturday night for the past 20 years and nine weeks. Wow. And in all that time, you know, uh, how can I put this? In all that time, Lady Luck hasn't waved her wand upon you. Not as yet. I fear I might have been terribly picky. But but perseverance is key, isn't it? Oh, yes, yes. A faint heart never won a fair lady, as they say. That's so true. That's so true, isn't it? So, do you have a, a system, or a timetable or whatnot for when you go on a date? Well... 
I always like to get to the restaurant a good while before I've arranged to meet the lady. This, this allows me to settle down and collect my thoughts and settle my nerves and enjoy the wonderful suspense of watching women enter the door thinking, oh, this might be her. I, I normally have a glass of wine to still my beating heart. All right, well, some good advice for those who are themselves on the dating circuit there, which is, this is the point of the whole feature. So, you went on a date on Saturday? Oh, yes, yes. So, talk us through it. Where was it that you went? A restaurant called My Old Dutch in Holborn. Oh, I've been there, Alan. It's great, isn't it? It's the one that serves um, pancakes and, and crepes. Oh, that's right, yes. It's classy, but not too expensive. I've been there on a few of my dates. And do you... Do you normally pick the restaurant, or does she... Or have... Um, it depends. I normally like to pick on the second and fourth weekends of the month, and the lady on the first and third. Right, so, what was her name, the, 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 the girl this week? Adriana. Oh, Adriana. Ah, Adriana. And what time did you arrange to meet up? At eight. And when did you get there? Half past four. <laughs> so, so that's so you can survey the scene and settle down, like you say, and have a few glasses of wine? That's right, yes. So how many, how many glasses of wine did you have? Twelve. So when did she turn up then? At, at eight o'clock or was she a little bit late? I think it's a lady's prerogative to be a little late. She was there at 21 minutes past eight. Okay, and what were your first impressions when you saw her? Oh, she was quite the most exquisite young lady. A delightful face, um, rather elfish and healthy, with crystal green eyes, wide and expectant, and a slightly pouted mouth, a sweet neck, and narrow shoulders. She was wearing the most comely green dress, which displayed, I think, an artistic nature, and fitted uh, with a belt at the waist. It dropped to halfway down her calf, and everything finished with a divine pair of yellow slip-on shoes, which I, I like to think gave her something of a happy-go-lucky air. Wow, she sounds like a cracker. So, what happened then? Well, uh, the, the table I had selected was near the back of the restaurant. So when she came in and looked around, she didn't spot me at first, but a waiter came over to her and I saw her talking to him. And then he pointed to the back of the restaurant at me. I was probably about 20 meters away. And so she looked over and then she fainted a bit and fell against a chair and the waiter had to help her. 
was the first edition of Alan's Dates and be sure to download next week's podcast when we'll be back with more Alan's Dates. That's right, isn't it, Alan?